0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. There's text as a warning to us that there are going to be many false claims to Christ, there's going to be many false teachings about Christ, there's going to be many false teachers. And this is a call for discernment. Christianity is a religion of discernment, of discerning truth from error. And this particular portion of Scripture is, is a call to be discerning. So I'm going to actually read from verse 23 through 27. And... And then I'll pray. Then, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. O God in heaven, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come now and pray for your blessing upon your word. As it has now been read and as it is about to be preached and heralded, I pray, O God, we pray together that the preaching and hearing of God's word would be with power from heaven, for supernatural blessing this morning, for the salvation of sinners, and for the restoration of backsliders, and for the strengthening of your church, we pray. I pray, dear God, that you would guide the sermon, and that we ourselves would be found being discerning, And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we're in the Olivet Discourse. And you'll remember that the Olivet Discourse is Christ's answer to the question that's posed to him in verse 3. Disciples pull him aside in verse 3. They ask a question. Question. Question is, as he sat on the mountain of olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? So these are the questions that Jesus is answering. The question itself is divided up into three sections, these things, when will these things be? That's a clear reference to the destruction of the temple because Jesus had just prophesied that the temple itself would be destroyed. And then the question is the sign of your coming, which is a clear reference to the second coming of Christ, um, certainly with his use, or with the use of the word perusia, the Greek word there. That is a reference to Christ's second coming. And then they ask when will be the close of the age, which I believe is referring to the beginning of the Messianic age and the close of the age of temple worship, sacrificial system. And so there's really three questions mixed together and one question, and it seems that the disciples have muddied it all together, and they're trying to discern. I think it's all going to happen at once, and Jesus starts to explain how it's going to unfold they muddy it together and he kind of parses it out for us in what follows in the all of the discourse. So up until now he's been dealing exclusively with the events leading up to the destruction of the temple. So as I'm just getting us up to speed here in verses 4 through 8 Jesus talks about the nations tottering in the Roman empire and he says in verse 6, and the end is not yet, okay? And so it's very clear he's leading into the end of the age, which will happen at the destruction of the temple, but the end is not yet. In fact, it's just the beginning of birth pains. So it's coming, but it's not yet. And then in verse 9 through 13, he discusses the tribulation that will come upon the Christians is the nation's totter. So verse 4 through 8, It's kind of high-level view of the world, and then verses 9 through 13 is the tribulation that will come upon the Christians. And he says clearly in verse 13, he who endures to the end will be saved. So inferring that the end is not yet. You have to endure through this trial. The end is the destruction of the temple, the end of this age. And then in verse 14, he talks about the empire-wide gospel preaching. He says the gospel will be preached in all the world, I argued Think persuasively in that sermon that he's referring to the Roman Empire, and the New Testament indicates that the gospel indeed was preached throughout the Roman Empire. And then, once it is preached throughout the empire, verse 14, the end will come. So, the theme that unites us is verse 6 and the end is not yet, it's just the beginning of birth pains. Verse 8, verse 13 He who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 14, after this gospel preaching goes forward in the empire, then the end will come. All of this is leading to the end. It's all leading up to this destruction, this cataclysmic event, this terrible event leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And we're still leading up to that in the prophetic statements of Christ here. Verse 15 through 22 today, or rather of last week, speaks of the terrible events that occur between the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem. So all of this is prophecy, but it's prophecy that was fulfilled in the lifetime of Christ's disciples. And so as we look back on it, it's fulfilled prophecy, but as they heard it, it was prophecy that was yet to be fulfilled. I've argued that it was fulfilled in 70 A.D. These terrible events of last week, verse 15 through 22, occur between the time of the abomination of desolation, which I said was probably around 66 A.D., and the destruction of Jerusalem, which is in 70 A.D. And this, verse 15 through 22, I think the text indicates this isn't the end, but it's the beginning of the end. This whole period is the beginning of of the end. It's we're, we're almost there. And today, there's no indication that we've moved on in time as far as this prophecy goes. And still, we're still in this tribulational period between the abomination of desolation and the destruction of Jerusalem that Jesus is prophesying. It's important to note that I, I really believe that this is talking about prophecy that from our perspective was fulfilled in the first century, but from their perspective, because this is about 33 AD when Jesus is giving the prophecy, from their perspective, it's prophecy that's about to be fulfilled, and it will be within their generation, as Jesus says in verse 37. Um, Or rather, verse 34. Excuse me. Well, today we're still in that tribulational period, and after the abomination of desolation, the disciples will have a very short window to flee. Jesus tells them very clearly to flee in verse 16. Get out of Judea, go to the mountains. They'll have that very short window, and then Jerusalem, history indicates that after that window closed, Jerusalem was sealed off. It was sealed off by the zealots, and it was sealed off eventually by the Romans, and they couldn't get out. So it was imperative that when they saw that abomination of desolation, as I explained what it was last week, they'd get out of Jerusalem. And so at the point in the prophecy today, it is before the destruction of Jerusalem, and it is after the abomination of desolation. So between roughly, he's prophesying of a time that's yet to come, and the time was roughly between 66 and 70 AD. For us, this is prophecy that's fulfilled. For Christ's disciples, it was prophecy that was to be fulfilled soon. For us, it is fulfilled. For them, it was prophecy that was to be fulfilled soon. And specifically today, as I introduce this text, specifically today, Jesus addresses the false claims to the second coming of Christ. And so you, you could imagine, as I, as I talked about last time, it was going to be a terrible season, 66 to 70 AD, this time of tribulation, this great tribulation as the text calls it was going to be a terrible time. I described how horrifying of a time it was last week. And you could imagine that is if you're living in that, whether you're in Jerusalem and it's sealed off and there's no way out and you have these cutthroat zealots on the inside, or you're on the outside of Jerusalem because all the surrounding communities were destroyed too and, uh, and leveled. They're all raised, every one of them. You could imagine that there would be all kinds of false claims to you know, escape. Well, I, I got a plan. I'll get you out of here. But if you didn't escape in that little window, you weren't getting out. But but so what is what Jesus is setting the table for is the fact that there's going to be all of these false prophecies that are going to arise as this end of the age closes in, and the people are going to be looking for ways to get out of Jerusalem. But if they didn't take that short little window, they're not getting out. It's not going to happen. But yet this deals specifically with those people who will come and give the false prophecies and provide uh, false hope in false Christs. With all the carnage in and around Jerusalem, he prophesied that there would be false claims to the arrival of Jesus Christ is the urgency of the moment creates basically a market for false teaching. It's really amazing how false teaching and false prophets and false Christ can emerge during times of cataclysm. Because people are looking for hope. And desperate people are really looking for hope. And these were gonna be desperate pe- people. And I think we have to come to this text again. And I wanna remind you again That our Lord's purpose in this text is not sensational speculation. Our Lord's purpose is to prepare the hearts of the people for what they're about to face. He doesn't want them caught off guard with all of the false prophets that are gonna come, just as He didn't want them caught off guard with all the tribulation that was gonna come, just as He didn't want them caught off guard with the the defection in the church, with the cold hearts that would develop as a result of the, of the defection and as a result of the tribulation. Our, our Lord is much more concerned about preparing their hearts to face the trial than he is about needlessly speculating on what the trial is going to look like. He, is, he has this pastoral heart that is trying to help them before the trial comes. And... I think we need to take note of that because I think too many come to this type of stuff and it's, it's needless, endless speculation. And it simply appeals to our senses and really can become a f- source of biblical entertainment if we're not careful. And what the Lord really is getting at here is some very practical matters. Be careful. When everything's getting crazy and the chips are coming down and now all of a sudden there's all kinds of claims to false messiahs Don't lose your mind. Persevere to the end. And this is all about false teachers. How many times in this discourse alone, talk about this more, but in this discourse alone, in this chapter alone, how many times has Jesus warned against false teachers? Multiple. In fact the warning against false teachers is occurs more times than the warning about the tottering of the nations than the warning even about uh, the cold hearts than the warning about the persecution is the warning about false teachers because false teachers are a very real threat. And how many so many churches if you go to them there's no warning about false teachers. In fact to label somebody a false teacher and to say that so-and-so is a false teacher on the basis of what they're teaching is actually perceived in most quarters as unloving. I'm going to tell you this. You can't outlove Jesus, and he warns about false teachers a lot. So apparently it's a very loving thing to do. But how many places do you go to where the minute you start talking about this way, they perceive you as being you know, too judgmental or too holier than thou or, or too harsh. But the reality is, is this bell needs to be rung. And so many think, oh, if they claim they're a Christian and if they say Christian things, they gotta be Christian and, and how dare we judge them? But Christianity is an exercise in discernment. You're supposed to love God, not just with all your heart, but with all your mind, and to use the faculties of your intellect to discern truth from error. And one of the reasons is there's so many false teachers in the landscape today, is because I don't think we've been warned about them enough. And I think there's a whole bunch of people that are afraid to label them as false teachers when they actually are. And if you're a Christian and you have the Word of God in your hands and you're able to read it and you're able to understand it and you've been doing this for a while, you will develop the faculties of discernment. And you will be able to discern truth from error just as Jesus is telling the disciples to in our text today. And so with all the carnage around Jerusalem, It seems that his primary concern is that you not be taken with false teachers. People will look for false teachers. They'll look for an out. And Satan, if he won't get you to capitulate with the persecution, and if he won't get you to capitulate with all the tottering of the nations, and if he won't get you to capitulate with the appeal of, of sin in the world, He will try his darndest to get you to capitulate with the appeal of wholesome false teachers. Moral, upright, likable, wholesome people that will just tell you enough of a lie to get you to hell. They'll fill it with truth. They'll be likable, they'll be moral, they'll be upright. The type of person you like to live next door, but to, but they'll just tell you enough of a lie, to get you straight to hell, and so he warns of that here. I got two points this morning as Jesus pastorally prepares his teacher to or his people to resist deception. Number one is false Christs are deceptive, and number two, false Christs are recognizable. They're deceptive and they're recognizable. I'm going to talk about both. False Christs are deceptive, false Christs are recognizable. Let's talk about the deceptiveness of false Christs. Number one, false Christs are deceptive. We're left where the text is introduced today with the fact that there will be false Christs. Jesus says it in verse 23. He says, therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. So there definitely will be false Christs. And then he says in verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect.'" So there's going to be false teachers, there's going to be false Christs. There's a major problem. Verse 5, it came up. This is in verse 5. A few weeks ago we looked at this. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they'll lead many astray. Verse 11, it comes up again, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then he warns about it again, all the way down to verse 25. He says, see, I have told you beforehand, speaking of the false prophets. So he's rung this bell now several times. He hasn't rung the bell about persecution several times. He hasn't rung the bell about tottering nations several times. He hasn't rung the bell about cold-heartedness several times. He's rung the bell about false teaching several times. I hope you get the point. It's one thing for Jesus to say it once. It's a whole other thing if He's going to say it multiple times, which He's done about false teaching. We need to be on our guard about false teaching. If the devil doesn't get you with sensuality, if the devil doesn't get you with persecution, the devil will get you with false teaching. And he'll use wholesome, likable people to take you down this dark path. The Bible even says that Satan comes as an angel of light. So you need to be very careful. And this should indicate that this section up until now, by the way, is you look at the false Christ that are going to come, these claims are actually about the bodily arrival of Jesus Christ. So it says, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, see, that's about the second coming of Christ. Verse 26, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Again, this is about the second coming of Christ. This is about the, he, these are about false claims to the second coming of Christ. And so if that doesn't indicate to you, that, like, that should really indicate to us this, is not, this whole section isn't primarily about the second coming of Christ. Because now he's, he hasn't even really talked about the second coming of Christ. He's talking about the tribulation on Jerusalem. He's, ta- he's going to teach about the destruction of Jerusalem. And now he's warning about false claims to the second coming of Jesus Christ. False Christs are distinct, by the way, so we get into this, are distinct from false prophets. So, verse 24 distinguishes the two. It says, False Christs and false prophets will arise. Now, what is a false Christ? What is a false prophet? A false Christ is a false claim to being the Messiah, and a false prophet is someone who teaches a false thing about the Messiah. And false Christs, what they like to do is surround themselves with false prophets, which are simply people who are going to legitimize. They're false teaching. And there's a reason that all of what he's warning about here is so deceptive. As my point is, is that false Christs are deceptive. There's, a re- there's reasons for that. There's going to be a need. Jerusalem's going to come under massive trial and tribulation, and it's going to be an absolutely terrible time to be alive. And so there's going to be a need, and people will want an easy way out, and these liars will offer it. Here's an easy way out. And all the while, the only way out is through Jesus Christ. But these liars will offer an easy way out of this terrible destruction that's going to come upon Jerusalem. And furthermore, the false Christ, as I said, will be validated by false prophets. Because the false prophets will be the ones saying in verse 23, Look, here is the Christ, look, here he is. Or in verse 24, Um, or or, sorry I'm rather verse 26 they will say look he is in the wilderness or look he is in the inner room so the false prophets will be validating the ministry or the false ministry of the false Christs so one of the things that makes false teachers appealing is they surround themselves with people who legitimize them how could everyone be wrong how could so many be wrong how could so many that we trust be wrong right and so the false Christ and the false prophets will be appealing because they're going to appeal to a need, and they're going to be appealing, and they're going to be deceptive because they're going to be validated, the false Christ will be, by more than one, multiple false prophets. False teachers love company because it validates their false claims. And beyond those validations, the, the need for this false ministry and the validation of the false prophets, beyond that, they will be accompanied by the, by the validation of signs and miracles. As the text says, look at what it says in verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. You see? And this is common throughout the Bible. Is that false prophets and false teachers utilize magic and miracles to appeal to people and legitimize their ministry? Pharaoh's. Magicians did that. Don't you remember when Moses tried to lead the people out of Egypt and what happened? But the Pharaoh's magicians, they copied Moses' miracles. And so the false prophets also had miracles. And then you see in Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, there was this man by the name of Simon the magician who did practice magic. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 9, or Revelation 3, verse 13 through 14. It tells us that the Antichrist will have signs and wonders accompanying him. And so it's, it just ought to enter your mind that just because somebody has miraculous powers doesn't mean they're from God. Or somebody can convince you that they have miraculous powers, it doesn't mean they're from God. In fact, there's a lot of ministries, so-called, that are so off track and so far away from God, but they will put on a big production of signs and wonders, And they're just using it to distract people from where their attention should be. In fact, Revelation 16 verse 14 tells us that demons give people the ability to perform miracles. Josephus in his history even claims, he's a first century historian, Josephus even claims that there were people who parted the Jordan and collapsed city walls as signs of the fact that they were true prophets, but in reality they were false prophets. So miracles were happening. And so the, these will be very deceptive people. Why? Well, because there's going to be a need for them. There, there's going to be an entourage that's going to validate them, and they're going to be accompanied by miracles. And their vision itself, their claims itself is going to be appealing. What they, where they want to lead you, the specificity of their claims will be appealing. So their vision makes them appealing. They can actually point to a location and give you clear direction. The text says in verse 26, so if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. They're giving clear direction here. And you could see how, with all of the carnage around, you could see how, hey, follow me out into the wilderness, how that would be an appealing claim. Hey, guys, let's get off the grid, right? Let's get out of here. Let's get away from civilization. Why would that be an appealing claim? Well, you you know why it is. Let's get away from this mess. Follow me, and I'll introduce you to Jesus in the wilderness. And you can imagine why that would be appealing, are the inner rooms. Actually, in the wilderness, it's interesting, because apparently there was a man by the name of Jonathan who led people during this time into the desert for salvation, where they accordingly were going to meet with Christ. And when he led them into the desert for salvation, they met with the Roman army, and the Roman army slaughtered every one of them. So uh, according to the historians, that actually happened, and and then this claim, hey, follow us into the inner room. Well, what's that? It's, it's, it's talking about maybe secret rooms in Jerusalem. I think it's actually likely talking about rooms in the temple where the zealots gathered people promising God's deliverance from the slaughter. And that actually happened because Josephus recounts that a false prophet called people into the temple, into the temple rooms. And he said, if you, they, they said, if you come into the temple rooms, you'll find deliverance the false prophet called them into the temple rooms, the zealots coaxed them to get into the temple rooms, and after they coaxed them to get into the temple rooms, where God was going to deliver them, guess what? The Romans set fire to the temple, and the people were either burned alive or they jumped out of the windows of the temple and died. Men, women, and children were coaxed into the temple inner rooms. And so it did happen. History validates that point. So the false Christs, false prophets, deceptive. Why? Well, they see a need and they're preying on the need. They're validated by other people. They have the ability to do miracles. They have a very clear vision. Follow us into the wilderness. Follow us into the inner rooms. And so compelling that apart from God's grace, they'd even deceive the elect of God if you look at verse 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, So as to lead astray, if possible, the elect, even the elect. Now, a reference to the elect is is a reference to those who have been predestined for salvation, those who have been elected by God. The ones who are saved are the elect of God. Salvation begins with God. It begins with God's decree to elect some and not elect others. That's what it means when it refers to the elect. And the reason that's consistent with this text is because the only way to escape false teaching is the grace of God like, oh, if, maybe I got the Look, if it was even possible, the elect would be taken, taken out. You, you might make it through all the trials, and you might make it through all the tribulations, you might make it through, through all kinds of problems in Jerusalem, but man, he, they, they'll take out the elect if they can. Well, it's not possible, thankfully. Because while the elect may be taken here and there from time to time, the elect will finally always find them, their ways back to the straight and narrow And follow the lord jesus christ why because salvation begins with god it doesn't begin with us your security to be protected from false teaching is not found in your free will your security to be protected from false teaching is not found in your ability to choose it's found in the power of god and that manifests itself in his sovereign decree to elect some for salvation and if you are among the some that he's elected to salvation then you will be among the some who are able to persevere through the temptation of false teaching he will lead you to the right place at the right time so that you can be led out of the mess of false teaching i've met so many christians who say well i i got led into false teaching and i got led out of false teaching why did that happen well somehow you got distracted but the power of god is such in your life that you couldn't stay there forever and eventually he got you out he always causes his true elect to persevere. And the point is that these men, however, have terrible demonic powers that will prove irresistible apart from God's sovereign grace. Their demonic powers will be irresistible apart from God's sovereign grace. You see, you see all the words in this text. Do not believe, verse 23. Do not believe. Verse 26, do not believe. Verse 26, do not believe. You see, do not believe them. Why does he need to say this so many times? Because the deception is going to be that powerful. It's that real. Don't believe them. Don't believe false Christ. Don't believe false teachers. Don't believe false prophets. Christianity is a religion of discernment. And too many think that love means we just believe people And we play along with the the rattlesnakes that the devil sends our way. If someone's let loose a bunch of rattlesnakes into this church, would you play with the rattlesnakes? Well, let me tell you something, that a false teacher is more dangerous than a rattlesnake. Because a false teacher will lead you right to hell. There's false gospel and false claims to Christ. And Christ warns again, more than he warns about the tribulations, more than he warns about the persecution, more than he warns about the cold-heartedness, he warns about the false teachers. You say, how do I escape false teachers? Are you God's elect? Seek the Lord. He'll lead you out of it. He will give you the powers of discernment. This is very dangerous stuff. I think you should be in your Bibles regularly. Personally, I try to read through my Bible once a year. If you read through about three chapters a day, you'll get through it every year. Okay. You should be bringing your Bible to church and following along in a sermon to check to make sure the sermon is in line with God's Word. You should be asking questions about what God's Word says, about what you are hearing, and then you should be comparing what you are hearing to the Scriptures, and you should always be praying and seeking the Lord that the Lord will lead you into sound doctrine and truth. Because false teaching is such that they'll just put enough poison in the truth that that little drop of poison will kill you. It looks like a glass of water, but it's a glass of water with a drop of cyanide in it. It Smells like water, tastes like water, looks like water, but it's got poison in it. That is false teaching. And if these people, who are going to be led astray by these false prophets, had just listened to Jesus, they'd be fine. And so would you. And so will you. False prophets are deceptive. False teachers are deceptive. False Christs are deceptive. But beyond that, not only are they deceptive, they're recognizable. You can recognize them. If you know the real Christ, this is my second point, they're recognizable. If you know the real Christ, you will recognize the false Christs. If you know the real Christ, you will recognize the false Christs. You hear me? If you know the real Christ, you'll recognize the false Christ. I've heard that they're going to train bank tellers how to discern true-between-counterfeit bills that come into the banks. What do they do? They, They get the bank tellers to familiarize themselves with the true bills. And the more they're familiar with the true bills, the more they realize that the false bills are out of place. And it's the same thing. The more you know the true Christ, the quicker you'll be able to detect a false Christ. The more you know the true teaching, the sooner you'll be able to detect false teaching. Charles Spurgeon said, he said, It is a a grand thing to have such faith in Christ that you have none to spare for the impostors. In verse 27, Jesus essentially says, If you know what the second coming looks like, you'll recognize the frauds. So you got all these false claims of the second coming of Christ. He says in verse 27, essentially, this is to substantiate what he's already said, so is to say, if you know what the second coming actually looks like, you will be able to detect the fraud. So look at verse 27. So he's just warned in verse 26. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. Verse 27, well, why would you not believe that? Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. I believe what he's saying here is, explain it. If you know what the second coming looks like, you'll recognize the frauds. The word for there, at the beginning of verse 27, it grounds the command that occurs in verse 26, and the command... You have to follow along here. The command that occurs in verse 26 is do not believe them. Why would you not believe them? Because they don't look like the second coming. They're saying go in the wilderness. They're saying go in the inner rooms. And guess what the second coming is going to look like? Well, it's going to be so big, it's going to be so obvious that you'll recognize it just as you'd be able to recognize lightning that flashes across the sky from east to west. That's how big it's going to be. It means his coming will be so recognizable that you won't need to chase him into the desert or into these hiding places. Now, the word coming in verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and the west so and shines as far as the west, sorry, as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. The word coming there is is translated from the Greek word parousia, And as best as I can tell, I think this is important, that word, parousia, occurs 24 times in the New Testament. And each time, it refers to physical presence. So it either refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ physically or to a man being present. So for example, Paul says in in, in Philippians 1, verse 26, he's coming to Philippi, and that word there is parousia. So it As best as I can tell, every time it occurs in the New Testament, it it refers to physical presence. And in fact, the last time this word parousia, as you see here, coming of the Son of Man, occurred was in verse 3 of Matthew 24. As I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, the disciples asked, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your parousia, of your coming? Okay? And what he's doing here... In verse 27, you got to follow along here, is he's contrasting the false claims of the second coming in verse 23 and 26 with the actual second coming. And so he's saying, you know those guys are frauds because that's not what the second coming looks like. You don't need somebody to get you to chase Jesus Christ down in the wilderness or someone to get you to chase Jesus Christ down in some inner room because guess what? When he comes, it's going to be so big, it's going to be obvious. R.T. France commented on it, and he said, The real Perusia, when it comes, will not be like the claims of the imposters during the siege. He's right on. Because remember, the, the temptation was these imposters would rise up during the siege, and they would lead people astray. The second coming of Christ will be so obvious, like a clap of thunder and a flash of lightning from east to west that you don't need to pay any attention to the frauds. Well, Christ has come. Well, I didn't see it happen. Okay. And I think I think you can fall into some errors when you come to this text. Some will come to this text and they'll say, Hey, see, look, he's talking about the second coming before the tribulation or during the tribulation but no he's he's actually distinguishing between the tribulation and the second coming because he's talking about all of these trials that are leading up to the destruction of jerusalem and all of these false prophets that are rising on the scenes and he's saying look it's not going to be like those false prophets when it finally comes it's going to happen it's going to be like a flash across the sky So I think think you have to be careful not to read into this that just because he mentions his second coming in verse 27 doesn't mean his second coming is going to happen during, before, or after the tribulational period that has already been discussed in Matthew 23, which is why some people come to this and say, see, it's all future prophecy because he hasn't come yet. No, this is all prophecy that's been fulfilled He's simply contrasting between the false prophets and what's actually going to happen. Or some people will come to this and and they're so convinced of of the preterist position that all of this is fulfilled that they want to just glance over verse 27 and the reference to the parousia and they'll say that's talking about the destruction of the temple where it's talking about the lightning coming from the east and the west or from the east as far as the west. That's talking about the destruction of the temple. But, but I think the use of the word parousia here has to lead you to believe that Jesus Christ is not referring to the destruction of the temple in verse 27. He's referring to the actual second coming of Jesus Christ, which is a prophecy that for us, from our perspective, is still to be fulfilled. So some people, you wait into this and they know exactly what I'm talking about because they know the debates, and then some people come to this. And you're like, what is he talking about? I think the point of the matter is, is that all of this up until now has been an answer to the question about what the destruction of the temple is going to look like, what the end of the age is going to look like, and what the second coming is going to look like. And the disciples had it all blurred together in their mind that it's all going to happen at the same time. And up until this point, Jesus has been talking about what the destruction, what the events are going to look like leading up to the destruction of the temple. And he's saying, when those false prophets come and say that Jesus Christ has come again, don't listen to them because this is what it's going to look like. It's going to be a flash. It's going to be like a flash across the sky, and you're going to know what's happened when it happens. So don't get caught up in this nonsense. The, the word parousia there, I think, is so important. One theological dictionary says it's used for the arrival of a ruler, a king, or an emperor. And it's always used of a physical arrival of a dignitary. In the, use, in the usage in the New Testament, it's always a physical arrival. And in reference to Christ, it's always a physical arrival at, of him at his second coming. So I don't think this is. The use of it here in verse 27 indicates that the whole prophecy is futuristic, nor that the whole prophecy will be fulfilled twice. It's simply contrasting verse 26, the false claims to the second coming, with what the real second coming is going to look like, and that's in verse 27. There will be no deliverance of Jerusalem in 70 AD outside of those who decide to obey Jesus when he says flee when you see the abomination of desolation. In other words, don't put your false hope in false Christs. And by the way, verse 26 isn't even an exhortation to look for the second coming. It's just a description of what it looks like. The exhortation occurs in verse 16, flee when you see the abomination of desolation. The exhortation occurs in verse 23 through 26, don't believe the false claims to Christ. But there's no exhortation in verse 27. He just says, this is what it's going to look like when Christ comes again. Verse 27 simply contrasts the second coming of Christ with the false claims so that you could recognize the false claims. And verse 27 says nothing about the timing or the chronology of the parousia other than what it will look like. doesn't tell us what it will come before. It doesn't tell us what it will come after. It simply says this is what it will look like. And it's not going to look like these guys who are going around saying, look, you've got to go in a little room and Christ is in there. you got to go out in the wilderness, Christ is in there. No, it's going to be so obvious that every Christian is going to recognize it. And there's going to be lighting across the sky. What's my point in, in saying all this? Well, my point is, is that false Christs and false teaching is recognizable. How is it recognizable? It's recognizable when you know the truth. So study the truth. How does Jesus give them powers of discernment? He gives them truth. This is what the second coming has looked like. So, so don't get caught up in the false claims. And by the way, there's still false prophets today. If you haven't noticed, this isn't ended. Like when I was a kid, I remember, do you remember these people, that, there was a comet that was circulating the earth and there was some death cult out in western United States, in California, I think it was, and, and they figured they'd all get together in a room and commit suicide so they could catch the comet to heaven. Do you remember those people? Well, they should have read this. They wouldn't have wasted their lives. Right, you got the, remember the, David Koresh down in Waco, Texas, false claims to messiahship, it was a Jim Jones that took him over across seas and they all drank the Kool-Aid and died, right, false anticipations of the Messiah, people still get caught up in this stuff, And, and so you might be very zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ, and you might be very zealous with the things of God, But just understand this, if somebody's walking around saying they're the Christ or there's the Christ over there, go follow him or or, go do that or go to this place, because that's where you're going to find the Christ, what you need to remember is that when Christ comes again, the one unfulfilled prophecy that we're waiting for is the second coming of Christ. When Christ finally comes again, it's going to be so obvious that if you're God's elect, you're going to recognize it. You're going to see it. And you don't need to get caught up in this nonsense. There's been people throughout the ages who, who there, there's been seasons of kind of end times fervor, and there's been people throughout the ages, and what do they said? They say, well, well, liquidate your bank accounts and sell all of your assets, and um, if you liquidate your bank accounts and sell all your assets, I know the timing of Christ coming, so why, why would you keep all of, the, all of your assets at this particular point in time? And so give your money to this, or do this with it, or, or, or don't keep it around, and then liquidate everything and, then, and come this way. Yeah, well, so far, every time someone said that, it's failed, So if somebody comes to you and says that, they're, they're probably not telling the truth. In fact, they aren't. Because when the Lord comes, you will see it. The best way to discern error is to know the truth. If you want to know Christ, you will be able to discern error. You got to be reading your Bibles. You got to be studying your Bibles. You got to be bringing your Bibles to church and checking the sermon against the Bible. You got to be asking questions of the Bible. You got to be asking questions of what you hear about the Bible. The way to protect yourself and your family from false teachings and false Christs is to recognize the false Christ, because while the false Christs are deceptive, they are recognizable, and you will recognize them by knowing the truth. And there's a lot of people. By the way, I think I think you can fall in an error. If you're not pointing to false teachings, but there are a lot of ministries, and some ministries, by the way, all they do is talk about false teaching. Look, it's an important aspect of ministry, but it's not the whole ministry. And in fact, the best way to gird yourself up against false teaching is to know the truth. So we ought to be spending more time talking about the truth than we are about false teaching. Although false teaching is important, The end game is the truth if you know the truth it will protect you from false teaching and there's only one christ he's not hidden in a room somewhere he's not out in a field somewhere he's with god in heaven and he's returning again are you ready for his return are you ready to meet the lord there's no other way to god but through christ so i hope you're in christ I know you're eagerly anticipating his return when it comes, and that as you wait for him, as you wait for our Lord Jesus Christ, that you're able to detect the false Christs and the false teachings and recognize them because you know the truth very well and you're able to discern truth from error.